Can you place yourself in the mindset of a Jew about 4 BC? You live in Jerusalem, which is supposed to be your homeland, but you're not alone. The most powerful empire ever to rule the world, the Romans, control your country, your city, your livelihood. You have to pay them taxes. You have to follow their rules. You live in essentially a police state. Worst of all, your people haven't heard a message from God for 400 years. To put that in a contemporary context, if we think of God's revelation like music, it would be like nobody had composed any music since the 1600s Renaissance. No Bach, no Mozart, no Beethoven, no Tchaikovsky, no Irving Berlin, no Frank Sinatra, no Taylor Swift. Oh, it wouldn't be all that bad, would it? Just kidding. You get my point? It's been a long time if you're a Jew waiting to hear from God. Longer ago than World War II for us. Longer ago than the Civil War. Longer ago than the Revolutionary War. We're talking all the way back to the Mayflower. And as a good Jew, you know all the promises that God has made to your nation. You've memorized the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy as a child. You know all about Father Abraham. You know all about King David. You thought the blessings would go on forever. But it's been a long, long time waiting for your avenger to arrive, the Messiah. Every year you keep celebrating the Passover, hoping to be rescued once again. Well, there's good news for you if you're a Jew living in 4 B.C., Because God is making the ultimate entrance into his world. And the one who arrives is going to be praised by the angels of heaven. In a public display over the skies of Bethlehem, greater than any light show you've ever seen. Better than any fireworks or laser or Christmas light show that you've ever seen. But this morning, realize this. You and I, in 21st century America, cannot understand the arrival of Jesus as we should unless we understand it in light of the bigger picture that the Bible provides. And so that's my hope this morning as we review these verses that we don't review often, although we have reviewed them a few times over the years, these opening verses to the first gospel the first book of the New Testament, the first word from God in 400 years. And we've got a list of names. Well, let's make some general observations here as we begin. 
Look at verse 1 and look at verse 17. They kind of bookend this section, and they seem to stand out. Verse 1 serves as what I would call an introduction. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 17 serves as kind of a summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Bab- to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Verse 1, if you were to read it in the original language, in the Greek language, it would, it would go like this, literally. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Genesis, it's the same word. It's the word Genesis. Now, why is that word there? Is it, is it supposed to take our minds back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis? I think so, at least from the perspective that this is a new beginning, a new testament, a new period of God's dispensation on this planet. And the earliest promise of salvation in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Remember that? That the woman will bear a seed and the serpent, that whole, the, whole, the whole part about the serpent and the woman's seed hating each other. That promise that was made all the way back in the beginning is about to be fulfilled. Notice the other major names in verse 1. David and Abraham. Does it seem odd to you that David's mentioned first? He came a lot later than Abraham, about a thousand years later. But he's mentioned here first. I think that's significant. I think Matthew is doing that on purpose. He wants to draw our attention to King David. In verse 17, we find the order reversed. Abraham, then David. Then Christ. Oh, wait, there's something new in there. The deportation. We might also call that the exile. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took the captives to Babylon, including people that you know like Daniel and the three Hebrew slaves, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is the exile doing here in verse 17? This was all nice and neat until that showed up. We'll get back to that in a minute. Look at verse 17. It also explains, as Greg just mentioned, the structure of the passage, doesn't it? If you want a really nice, neat outline of this genealogy, you've got one right here. 14 generations, then 14 generations, then 14 generations. Why 14? Is it a magic number? Well, some have suggested that the 14 times 3 equals 42. Um, I had to use my calculator on that. Uh, which might refer to the numbers in Daniel in different ways. So there's three consonants in the word David in the Hebrew. A D, a V, and another D. And the, the vowels in Hebrew are just like little dots and squiggles and things over the consonants. But the, the consonants there are D. V and D, and those numbers are 4, 6, and 4 in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. 4, 6, and 4 adds up to 14. And you didn't even need to use a calculator. So 
Why did Matthew use 14 to divide the sections up? We don't know for sure. But it was fun to speculate, wasn't it? No, I'm just kidding. I think it has to do with this emphasis on David and on the kingliness that is represented in all these names. Something else that's interesting to think about is that all these 42 generations that are listed here, although they go from Abraham to Jesus, they're missing generations. It's not an exact copy of the genealogy. It's not an exact set of family records. It's it's a selected set of family records. One author writes that Matthew, quote, is not providing us with a comprehensive list, but rather a selective list. By his selective pattern, he's underscoring his specific purpose, unquote. So if we're going to study the genealogies for a few minutes this morning, the best way to study this is probably not to go into a biographical detail about every person in the list. That's probably not what Matthew wanted us to do. He didn't want us to take the name Joram out of the list and do a study on Joram. What he wanted us to do is thinking about why God may have included the names that he did. What purpose do they have? One example of this is found in the women that are included in this genealogy. Did you notice them? There are four of them in five if you count Mary. It's significant because these kinds of lists in Jewish history, genealogies, do not normally include women. They weren't counted as important when it came to ancestry. It was always fathers to sons. That's how they counted it. But they're important in this genealogy, aren't they? What do they have in common? These names, we know these people, don't we? Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah, otherwise known as Bathsheba. All of them are either Gentiles or married to Gentiles. Another despised category to the Jews. All of these women also seem to have lifestyles that were outside of what was appropriate in God's law. Ruth came from Moab, a pagan Tamar seduced her father-in-law by dressing like a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba's adultery with King David led to her firstborn child's death and her husband's murder. What a messed up family tree, huh? Let's talk then for just a minute about some unfinished business. Think through these three sections of 14 generations with me for just a minute and see what they might have in common. I think there's one main idea that they all share, and that is unfinished business. Look at the sections and see if you see it too. The first section of 14 names has to do with the line of Abraham. Now hold your place here and let's go back to Genesis for a moment. I want to read Three passages here as we think about these three sections. Look at Genesis chapter 12, and I want to read verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This was the call to Abram, back when he was called Abram, by the Lord. 
And this is what's also known as the Abrahamic covenant that God made with him. Right at the beginning. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. That's pretty, pretty cool, huh? The, the second section of 14 names has to do with David. Um, turn over for just a minute to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We have a very important meeting here as well between God and King David. This is also called the Davidic Covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And look at verse 8. This is coming from the Lord through the prophet Nathan. We know David has another experience with Nathan later. But this is coming through the prophet Nathan to David. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Remember, David was a shepherd. That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, Solomon, right? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jump over to Psalm 72 for just a moment. The title of Psalm 72 you'll notice, says, of Solomon. This means it could have been written by Solomon or it could have been written to Solomon or for Solomon. But just notice the first few verses. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Now, this sounds like a a general type of a blessing that uh, the Lord might put on any king of Israel, right? But go down a little further. Let's look at um, uh, at verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon 
throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls in the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river, that's the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That's a reference to the serpent, by the way, back in Genesis. As you read through Psalm 72, you notice that he, he goes from talking about an earthly king to talking about something greater, something bigger. A land that goes from sea to shining sea. A land that goes from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Well, Solomon never ruled over such a land. And I'm here to tell you, no king of Israel ever ruled over such a land. There's promises here that are unfulfilled. Look over in Psalm 137 talking about this third category, the exile. And here's what was written. One thirty-seven. This is written about the time of the exile. By the waters of Babylon. That's where Nebuchadnezzar took him. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Look down in verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Look down in uh, verse 6. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You know, there's a huge promise in these verses made to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't see that being fulfilled before Matthew chapter 1 as I read the Old Testament. There's a, a huge and significant statement made to David about his kingship, his, rule, his reign, that his line will go on forever. And I don't see that fulfilled either before Matthew 1. In fact, the last Israel king um, was taken into exile. And the exile, at least in this record that we've, that, we, that we've looked at here in Matthew, it doesn't have a resolution. We know, that, we know the story. We know that the Jews returned to the land. They rebuilt, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah and Ezra and others. But they never had a true king to sit on the throne of David again from that time on. In some senses, Israel was still very much in exile Certainly spiritual exile. No king. No word from God. No hope. But God would fulfill His promises to them, not because of their righteousness, but in spite of their sinfulness. And a baby will be born. And as we go on into the, 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 the passage after uh, this genealogy, we find the name of this baby in verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ and even the baby's name is a sign that everything is going to change because the name Jesus from the Hebrew word Joshua, Yeshua, means God saves. And so, brothers and sisters, what is happening at this moment in time is that Jesus, coming as the baby, is 
the promised sign of David, who will rule on the throne forever. He is the promised seed of Abraham, who will bless all nations, all peoples. And the baby who is born in the manger is the Savior of the world. The arrival of Jesus on the world scene changes everything. Everything. It's a big deal. And by the way, can I just say this out loud, even though I know you guys know this and believe this, but let me just say it out loud for public record. It's a big deal, and it's way bigger than lights and presents and music and reindeer. And I love the festivities surrounding Christmas. But let's not allow the secular culture around us to rob us or replace the infinite joy that we have in remembering the birth of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be happy and joyful this Christmas season, don't let your happiness and joy come only from the secular celebrations. If that's what you're looking for to boost your spirits this holiday season, friend, there's something far greater, far better. And it's the birth of the baby in the manger. All right, some, ta- some practical takeaways before we move into the Lord's Supper this morning. What can we learn from this genealogy that can help us today? One thing I think we we see pretty clearly is that God's dealings are with actual people, not with ideal people. You know, some of you are coming into this Christmas season, whether you're here this morning or watching on live stream, and you've still got it really wrong in your head that God is going to include good people and reject all the bad people. The fact of the matter is, the Bible says we are all bad people. Some are worse than others, but we're all equally lost before God. And in the world's perspective, both the good and the bad need a Savior. God deals with actual people, not ideal people. You should be glad because You are not an ideal person, and neither am I. Only by the grace of God. Another takeaway I think we can take away from this is God uses all the messy stuff to accomplish his purpose. You don't read through this and say, oh, this is a beautifully clean and tidy, neat and organized, perfect ancestry. It clearly isn't, which ought to be an encouragement to us, because I don't know about you, but if I examine the history of my life, it's not clean and tidy and organized and neat and perfect either. But God is bigger than all those things. In fact, he uses all of the stuff, even the messy stuff, in order to accomplish his purposes in our lives, just like he did in the life of his own son. Something else I think we can, we can think about this morning is that God is not operating on our timetable. Do you ever get tired 
waiting for the rapture? Do you ever get weary like, ah, is Jesus ever going to come back? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. It's one of the things that causes people to doubt the faith, the word, the promises. Well, think about this and help, let this help put it in perspective for you. The promise that God gave to Abraham took 2,000 years to come to fruition. Do you realize that? Abraham was 2,000 years before Christ. People said it's never going to happen. Especially in that time between Malachi and Matthew. Those, the, 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 old, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Those 400 years of darkness, of silence from God. And just at the right time, when we had no way of escape, Christ Jesus came. And He lived and He died for sinners. And it's been 2,000 years since He promised He would return too. But at just the right time, He will. Just as He came to fulfill Abraham's promise. God's timetable is not our timetable. But it is certain. You can depend on it. Something else to think about. The family tree of Jesus contained some who were moral outcasts or considered moral outcasts. You know, this reminds us that Jesus reaches out to those who are morally messed up, which is all of us. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. That's an obligation to the creator of the universe. And by failing to do that all the time, as we should, we are immoral by nature. And thank God that he has grace for people like us and mercy and forgiveness to save us, to redeem us, to change us, to make us new. Notice then finally, the family tree of Jesus was also ethnically diverse. The diversity that's represented in this this timeline, not least of all in Ruth, is a clear reminder to us that we are called to proclaim the wonders of God's grace to a sinful world. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is good news for all people. Do you remember the angels saying that? It is good news for all people. Jesus came so that all the families of the earth might be blessed. So that all of them can have good news. So that all of them can know his peace. And in closing, as the praise team comes back for our our final songs, as the leadership team gathers to get ready for communion, Just a couple final thoughts here. As you reflect on Jesus' genealogy this morning, aren't you amazed that God would love you? Aren't you amazed? Isn't it amazing that he would save you? 
and save me? Take the history of your life, even up to today. The fact of the matter is it's not all pretty, right? It's not all perfect. It's messed up in many times, in many places. If Jesus had such individuals as his ancestors, we should not be surprised that he has such individuals as his followers. Very shortly in his gospel, Matthew will introduce us to this one who is a friend of sinners, who did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he is encouraging us, I think, to realize that God's purposes are fulfilled sometimes in ways that we could never imagine. And God's plans includes events that we would never desire. I know there's things I would change about this last year if I could. It's not my plans. It's God's plans. And so I can be okay with that. He's doing something through them. God's plans also include people that we might normally exclude. But with our God, the excluded are included. And aren't you glad? Because most of us in this room are Gentiles. Not even part of Jesus' own people until we became so through Jesus. Most genealogies are simply a record of deaths, but not this one. Because at the end of this one, a child is born who never dies. Well, he dies once. We're going to celebrate that. But he lives. Matthew's genealogy, I think it's helpful for us to think of it this way. Matthew's genealogy has a past, has a present, and it has a future. And even though Jesus himself never had any children, sorry, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and all that myth, right? Even though he never had any children while he was on earth, he has adopted millions of them. And because of that, Abraham and David become our fathers. Matthew 1, 1 to 17 becomes our genealogy. Do you see that? This is in your line now because you're in Christ. Your names and mine and all the followers of the Lord Jesus are added to the list. We become part of his story. What grace is that? This time of year, there's lots of talk about an important man who's making a list and checking it twice. But friends, this is the only list that you need to make sure your name is on. The list that is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And I hope that your name is on that list today. 
If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would love to take the time to explain to you this morning what the good news is for all people, including you. And if you would just come and see us after this service today, stop over here in the corner of the auditorium by the cubicle there to have a Bible counselor take the Bible and pray with you and explain to you how you can take those first steps becoming a follower of Jesus or talk to any one of us pastors or any one of these men on the front row or frankly, any Christian sitting near you. We would love to explain to you how you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I hope that if you're not, you will. And this would be a great season to do so, wouldn't it?